The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you this morning again. Glad that you're able to be here. If you're visiting today, we want to especially make sure that you feel welcome. Let us know if there's anything we can do to uh, serve you this morning. And for those that of you that are normally or usually here, we're glad that you're back once again to be with us. I hope that, uh, well, while I'm saying this, why don't you turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, find your way there to about the middle of the chapter. We left off uh, halfway through last time because the chapter is so lengthy. Um, I hope that you will be patient with us uh, in the church um, facilities department, as it were, because uh, this new regime has us changed, has us changing how we do the airflow and the heat and all that. So a little too hot, a little too cold. Uh, we're never going to be able to get it just right for everybody. But um, what we're trying to do is keep the air moving throughout the whole service, which has a couple of downsides in this building. One is it's a little bit loud, um, for me at least. Um, secondly, uh, actually it's a benefit in that it kind of stirs up the air and keeps the temperature a little more even. But um, the key thing as I've studied this whole matter of this virus is to get fresh air in and air motion. If there's not that, then you have much worse outcomes. And so that's what we have been focused upon to try to uh, help us out here. So we have a fairly large uh, exhaust system running on the roof and, uh, and then fresh air coming in from over here and uh, filtered. Uh, but we're not quite done yet. We still have some more work to do. So uh, hoping to, uh, to figure out some more of that uh, soon. But we'll let you know when that comes about. All right, Deuteronomy 28, please. And we're going to start in verse 36. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 36. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Okay, I know I've just started, but let me stop already. For those of you that don't remember or weren't here last week, Deuteronomy 28 is God's promise to the people of Israel that if they obey the law, they will be blessed. If they disobey the law, they will not be blessed. In fact, they will be cursed. The first 14 verses in the chapter deal with the blessings. The last, oh, however many it is, 45 or 50 verses or so, deal with the curses that will come for disobedience. It seems like an awfully condemnatory section, an awfully long section, but it turns out almost a prophetic section because the people of Israel went down the wrong path, which we'll learn about later today. Picking up at verse 37, And you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations where the Lord will drive you. You shall carry much seed out to the field, but gather little in for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the, for the worms will eat them. You shall, have an olive, you shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land, the alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head and you shall be the tail. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Here's why. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Therefore you shall serve your enemies. 
whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand, a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. Those are especially marks of unrighteous peoples. By the way, the, the mention of languages in 49 is significant. You'll see it in Isaiah uh, 28, I think, actually. Same chapter number, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, speaking of the whole notion of uh, tongues and uh, different languages, it's a sign of judgment, as we've said before. 51, And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave your grain or new wine, or oil, or the increase of your cattle, or the offspring of your flocks, until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at all your gates, until your high and, for, until your high and fortified walls, in which you trust, come down throughout all your land. And they shall besiege you at all your gates, throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and desperate straits, in which your enemy shall distress you, the sensitive and very refined man among you will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter, her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues and serious and prolonged sicknesses. Moreover, He will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. You shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it were evening. And at evening you shall say, Oh, that it were morning because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes see. And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships by the way of which I said to you, you shall never see it again. And there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one will buy you. Well, may God get a hold of our hearts and fill our attention with His Word in this regard. Um, as we continue our reading in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy there, uh, we'll come soon to the end of that book and have to move on to another. But uh, we are just hoping that we receive some benefit from that word. It is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction and instruction in righteousness. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, please, this morning. We continue our series in 1 Corinthians chapter by chapter. Paragraph by paragraph, verse by verse, and we have arrived at this portion. It's no accident that we're here today in this particular section of Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 9 ended 
with these words, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And so the Apostle Paul is telling us that we must live in a purposeful, intentional, self-disciplined, self-controlled and holy manner so that we will not be disqualified. Now, we alluded last week to some differences in understanding of what it means to be disqualified. If you, uh, by the way, if you, I hope you have a copy of the notes today. If you, you don't have to have one to follow along, but it can be helpful if you want to. If you don't have one, you can grab one in the back, on the back table there by the uh, bulletin board or wait until after the service. You can grab a copy and, and uh, take a look at that. Afterwards, I'm uh, preaching from the very notes that you're looking at, as I most often do. Sometimes I have the uh, revised and expanded version from what you have, but today it's, it is the same. Um, so the Apostle Paul says I, he doesn't want to become disqualified. There's certain conditions that could lead to disqualification. And we alluded last time to what that might mean. There are a couple different views on it, but whatever you think about disqualified, it's not good, right? I mean, some people think that disqualified means just merely loss of reward, and others think that disqualified is a, is a more stringent term, if you will. Uh, well, actually, we won't even go here, but some people believe outright it just means loss of salvation, which it is a heresy. It's wrong to say that. There's no such thing as a loss of true salvation. However, there is a view that is sort of akin to that, but not exactly the same, which speaks about the lack of perseverance in the faith demonstrating that one was not truly born again. Now, we've said that over and over in different ways over the years, but... You can look at it in either way, neither of which are good, neither of which are things that a believer wants to get into. And I think this passage that's coming up is going to speak to us whatever our particular view is about this. But I don't think it's arguable that the illustrations that are given in chapter 10 point to the more serious view of disqualification. The Apostle Paul is saying, you know, it, perhaps, if if I preach, you know, if I turn out to be a, a reprobate, the fruit shows that I'm a reprobate, then I'd be disqualified, meaning totally out. Totally out, demonstrating that I'm not even born again. Now, there's a lot more we could do to wrap our heads around that. And we'll do some, perhaps, of that this morning. But in any case, we could either be speaking about a believer in Christ who could be disqualified from service, to God and lose rewards, and that does happen. You could talk about be talking about professing Christians facing a, a different reality, and that is disqualification, meaning falling under the judgment of God, and that's what happens in chapter ten. the The judgment there is not merely a loss of reward, uh, kind of a softer loss. It's a harsh loss. It's a harsh judgment that people. Received because they did not really believe in God and in Christ. Um, a word's only claim to salvation is as meaningless to salvation as Israel's claim to um, genetic forebearers was useless. You, you, can, you cannot say, look, I'm of a certain line, I'm of Abraham, so I'm all set. There are many descendants of Abraham who have rejected Christ and are not true believers in Him. Many, many of them. And likewise, many people who darken the doors of a church or have a words-only expression of their salvation, they're no different, no different boat professing Christians just because you were born into a family of Christian parents or profess faith with your lips does not mean you have it in your heart. Salvation is promised to those who truly trust and believe in Christ alone for salvation. 
knowing facts of the gospel is not the same as Christian trust. Wanting blessings from God is not the same as trusting in Christ. Adding Christ to your other religious ideas is not trusting in Christ. So there are many who make professions of faith. Then there are those who are just what I call plain old pagans. Unbelievers, atheists, secularists, humanists. They believe in themselves perhaps, but not in God. And certainly not, even if they do profess a kind of belief in God, that there's a higher power, they might say, or the big man upstairs. They certainly would not lower themselves to believe in Jesus, which is the issue in Christianity. It's not merely believing in God because the demons believe in God and they're fearful of Him, but that doesn't make them saved demons. So what Paul writes in chapter 10 here is going to be applicable no matter what your situation is. Professing believer, total pagan, or, uh, or a genuine believer. Whatever your case is, you must hear God's Word on this because what we're going to learn is that to avoid being disqualified, we have to reject lust and temptations. That's 1 to 13. And then 14 and following, we must flee from idolatry. So whether our propensity is to want to fulfill our, our, or satisfy our flesh with pleasures, or we have a propensity toward religiosity and, and idolatry, whether, whatever our tendency is or a combination of those things, we must, we must turn away from those things if we desire to receive the imperishable crown of life and not be disqualified. Now, let's look at chapter 10 and see what exactly it says here. Paul writes this. God writes this by the Spirit through Paul. Moreover, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That is, they died. They were judged. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, or word means instruction or warning, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul himself says that. And I think he says it to himself as well as to us. No pride. Verse 13, No temptation of these sorts, he's talking about, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. It is human. In other words, it is like people to do these things. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. I often think about that verse because I memorized it years ago in my own battles against the temptations that I faced. And I correlate it in my mind with Romans chapter 6 which talks about the fruit of sin that is death. And I do not want anything to do with that fruit. That's not good fruit. It's deadly to fall. I mean, when, when, when temptation is conceived or lust is conceived, it brings forth sin. When it becomes full grown, it brings forth what? Death, James says. So this whole section is about look at the example. Don't follow their example. 
read what you can, learn what you can from this, and know that there's no trial, temptation, lust, difficulty, test, whatever that can come to your life that is certainly able, or, or how can I say, most assuredly able to tear you away from God and cause that fruit of death. No, God can help you to come through that test and temptation successfully. Biblical history tells us that when there is no self-control, there is disqualification. No self-control, no discipline, like what Paul is saying in verse 27 of chapter 9. I discipline myself. I bring myself into subjection. You know, I tell my brain to shut up when it's thinking bad things. I stop my mouth from saying bad stuff. I tell myself to be obedient to God, not to obey the dictates of my own evil heart. Don't follow your own heart. Only as much as it follows Christ, of course. But anyway, biblical history tells us that no self-control leads to disqualification. Paul goes back to 1440 B.C. So we're talking, what, 3,500 years ago now almost in history. God provided for His people. Look at what He provided in verses 1 through 4. He provided for them guidance. He provided for them protection. That's what it means when it says under the cloud. You remember the cloud, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. I hope you're familiar with the Old Testament accounts of Israelite history. God provided for them the physical and visible manifestation of the presence of God. And even at one point when Egypt, the Egyptian army was chasing them, remember what that cloud did? Instead of being out in front and leading them, it circled back around them and stood between the nation of Israel and the people of Egypt to protect them and keep them separated until the people of Israel could cross over on dry ground and get onto the other side of the Red Sea. This is the special presence of God that protected and guided the nation. This was a theophany, which also was active at different times in different places in Israel. Uh, you want to maybe get your finger back in your Bible around Exodus because we want to look at a couple of verses there in that particular section. And uh, we'll look at uh, Exodus oh, chapter 3, verse number 9, just as a uh, justification for what I just said. No, that's not it. I don't think I've got the wrong portion there. Well, that happens to all of us sometimes, doesn't it? Well, anyways... Uh, you have the you have Moses at the burning bush in chapter three, but that's not the passage I wanted to go to. You, what I was looking for was the passage where the cloud uh, descends upon the tabernacle, which is later in Exodus. It's around thirty-two to thirty-five, somewhere in there, and the cloud descends there, and, and God meets with Moses in that place. There's a, another portion in the uh, historical books in Nehemiah. Let's see if I get this one now. Nehemiah 9.12 Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. So even back later on in, in, in Israelite history, they looked back on this and remembered it. And we see uh, in Exodus chapter 13, in Exodus 13 and verses 21, and 22, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Okay, keep your finger there in Exodus chapter 13. And so you have the provision of the cloud, guidance and protection. Then it says they, they passed through the sea. Since you're in Exodus, look at... 14.22 So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
Here they are in the middle of the Red Sea, but they're dry. That's amazing, uh, that great miracle. That, by the way, was the standard of miracles of all miracles until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the miracle and, and the whole, really, the whole Exodus event. But especially that was the pinnacle of it. And even remembered by Rahab in Jericho 40 years later, she said, We heard how God brought you out of the land of Egypt and through the Red Sea and our hearts when we see that you coming are, are, are melting with fear because God is with you, she recognized. This is a historical event, by the way, not a myth, not a legend. And uh, by the way, if it were a myth or a legend, I'll just say this right out. It wouldn't make much for an example or much for teaching of God's provision if it was just made up. You know, passing through the Red Sea. Oh, it's just a, a legend. But it's okay to use a, a made-up story as, a, as, a, as a, a basis for a lesson. No, it's not. No, it's not. You don't make up stories and then make them you know, to be some kind of good lesson. This is historical material here. This is God's real work among His people. So, they went under the cloud. They passed through the sea. What else does Paul say? They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does that mean? All of this, this event that we've been talking about in Exodus occurred under whose leadership? Humanly speaking, Moses. Okay, So you have Moses leading the people. He's the one standing out there with the staff. He's the one whose arms they're upholding in battle. He's the one that's out front. He's the one that's the kind of intermediary between them and God. And so it says they're baptized into Him. The people shared a national solidarity with their leader under God. That's why Paul says they were immersed into or baptized into Moses. Now, remember what we said about baptism a couple of weeks ago? What is the, the literal meaning of baptism is immerse into water, right? What is the spiritual significance of baptism? When we talk about being baptized into Christ or baptized into the church, the word identification is the key word. It's the meaning of the literal word metaphor. It's the can we say, or the, the literal word baptized, that is a, used spiritually as a metaphor for identification. So they were identified into Moses. Notice it does not say they were baptized into the cloud. They were not baptized into the sea. What does it say? They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. It's In other words, they're put into him. They're connected in solidarity and corporate solidarity with His leadership and became one with Him. Very interesting kind of thing. A similar thing happens to those who come to faith in Christ, remember. We are baptized into Christ. Identified with Him. In other words, we're kind of... I've never said it this way, but we were in Adam and now we're in Christ. As believers in Christ, if we acknowledge that we're sinners and that He's our Savior, that He paid for our sins, rose from the dead, we believe into Him, we kind of are unbaptized out of Adam and baptized into Christ. Yeah, I've never said that unbaptized kind of idea, but it's, it's what's happening. We're removed out of the realm of death and Adam and sin and we're baptized into the realm of Christ and righteousness and life. It's not... It's, it's not a thing that you feel physically or, you know, it's, it's a transaction that's operated by God upon the person who exercises faith in Jesus. So, baptized into Moses, that's another provision of God. Then, it says they ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. What was the spiritual food? It was manna. Now, don't go... Don't go allegorizing on me now, okay, and say, well, the spiritual food was the Bible. It wasn't the Bible. What, he's, what Paul is talking about here is spiritual means it came from the Spirit of God. Not spiritual means it's ghostly or has no material substance. You, you do believe that something can be material and spiritual at the same time, right? Right? We have, been, um, we have been taught from 
ancient philosophy, the idea that somehow that material is bad and that spirit is good. Um, Gnostic salvation was that you have to be released. Your, your soul has to be released from the prison house of your body. Christian theology teaches alternately. Christian theology teaches that you can be a spiritual person in a material body. In fact, if you're a Christian here today, you better be a spiritual person in a physical body. The world should be full of Christians who are in physical bodies who are spiritual people. This spiritual food is not ghostly food. Okay, It is food given by the Spirit of God. It's the, it's the bread from heaven. Now, you remember Jesus used this to illustrate something about Himself in John chapter 6. Moses gave you that bread from heaven, Jesus tells them, but I am the true bread from heaven. I am the manna from God, that which is nourishing to your spiritual relationship to God. Without that, you have nothing. And the same spiritual drink, uh, if you're still back in Exodus there, you could go to Exodus 17 and see this. Spiritual food is manna. Spiritual drink is water. All the congregation, verse 1 of chapter 17, the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, camped in Rephidim. By the way, wilderness of sin does not mean that it's sinful. Okay, It's just a name in that language of that place. Therefore, the people contended with Moses. There is no water for them to drink. They said, give us water that we may drink. So God gave them water. Remember how He did that? He told Moses, go before the people, take with you some of the elders, take, your, take in your hand your rod which, with which you struck the river and go. And um, so Moses did as he was instructed, strike the rock, water comes out, and the people can then drink the water. There's another incident like that in Numbers, but whether it's this one or the other one that Paul refers to doesn't really make any difference. The people were thirsty. They complained uh, against God. Now, why did God arrange for them to come to a thirsty place? Because He was mean? No, He arranged to test their faith. He arranged a place of thirst so that He could provide for them in their trust. It was a way for God to display His Jehovah Jireh character to them if they would just trust Him. I mean, hard to do, I will, I will admit. But the people of Israel had seen such miraculous wonders that they should have done this. Instead of complaining, they should have said, boy, I'm getting thirsty. But God is going to provide for us. We know that. Fathers to, his, to wives and children, we are going to have the provision of God. Somewhere along the line, we just need to pray for Him to give that provision. We don't know where it might come from. And it turns out it comes through Moses into whom they had been identified by that baptism. So, a spiritual element uh, to these events. Now, these things are not... I'm just going to go off on a short rabbit trail, okay? It's not that the Apostle Paul found some hidden meaning in all these passages in Exodus and Numbers and you know Deuteronomy and say, oh, wow, look at this. I find this new meaning. This is all spiritual stuff here. No, it's not that at all. It's that the experience of the Israelites was that God provided for them, but they had no discipline, no self-control, and they did not bring their bodies and their mouths into subjection. God was providing all of their needs by His Spirit, through, the, through Christ. But yet, they did not have a thankful spirit in the midst of that provision. So there's nothing typological here, nothing like a hidden that Paul has suddenly discovered. Uh, it's plain on the face of the text. So as a result of their indiscretion, look at verse 5. God has provided for them, and we're going to see in the, in the next upcoming verses here, 6, 7, 8, uh, 9, 10, that they rejected all of that. 
But we're not. This passage is kind of written. You might decide, oh, I'd like to write it in a different order, but it's in the order it is. Okay. So verse five says this: God was displeased with with most of them, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Let's look back just for a second in this passage. In verse four, it says they all drank the same spiritual drink. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all shared the same blessings of nourishment from God. Those were like common grace today. God gives the sunshine and the rain on all of creation. We all share in those blessings. They had all the nourishment from heaven, but only a small number of them were pleasing to God. God was very gracious. He showered down blessings upon them on a broad array of people and only a few appreciated it. The blessings of God, my friends, do not guarantee a right response, do they? They all received these things and only some of them believed in God. In fact, how many of them in Numbers 14 trusted God? One was not even a Jew. Two people were allowed to go into the land out of that whole crowd. Remember that? Ten were bad and two were good. The the blessings were showered broadly, but that didn't guarantee that everybody believed in God. And so it is for us, my friends. Just because you have received those blessings from God, life and sunshine and rain and fruit in its seasons and all those kinds of things that God gives to us, you can still use them incorrectly. You can still reject God. With you, God might not be well pleased What's the difference? What's the difference? Well, I mean, there's a difference in God and it's expressed in a difference in man. And here's the difference. In Hebrews 3 it tells us, Now with whom was He angry? Forty years? Was it not those who sinned whose corpses fell in the wilderness? Hebrews 3.17 says, verse 18, And to whom did He swear that they would not enter His rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter. That is, they, they died in the wilderness. We could see that they, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. They could not enter in because of unbelief. The people rejected God's provision in verses 1 through 4. And so, Paul says, these things became our example. They fell into idolatry. You know, the Ten Commandments told them no idols. Chapter 20. By chapter 32, they were building a golden calf. Aaron did not restrain the people, the Bible says. A large segment, we don't know how much, but a large segment of the population gave up on God and Moses and went after a manufactured God. And no doubt they had good reasons in their mind for doing that. Not good reasons, but good reasons in their mind. Look, what happened to this Moses guy? We need a, we need a, a, a fitting symbol to lead us, to be at our head, to guide us through this wilderness. Moses has lost 40 days, 40, he's gone, dead, whatever. But it was ultimately an excuse for their lust. The the people, verse number uh, 7, became idolaters. And then they got involved in immorality. Verse 7 says, And do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. They committed also not only idolatry, which was for, for, uh, forbidden, but also immorality. Ten Commandments forbade that as well. No adultery, 
No coveting of your neighbor's spouse in two of the commandments. But it says they were offering to this, this false god, this idol. They were eating, they were drinking, and then they were playing. That's a word loaded with immorality. Sexual immorality is often linked, by the way, with idolatry. Numbers tells us of the time that, well, Moab couldn't get Israel to, remember they couldn't get Balaam to curse Israel. And so, with Balaam's counsel, they said, can't, we can't trip them up in relation to their God directly, so we'll send in some temptations to them with our women. And we'll get them to fall in sin that way. Which succeeded in some measure and caused them to fall into sin. And this account tells us later on, in fact, uh, verse 8, it says, neither commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. That is, they were killed. There was a judgment upon them. And they lost their lives. just want you to notice something. Here in this portion of Scripture, you have a connection between food and drink and idolatry. And you had that in ancient Israel. And we just saw that in Corinth. In Corinth, in chapter 8, they were asking about well, can we eat this food offered to what? Idols. So you have food and drink with relation to idols. And then in chapter 6 and chapter 5, they're having problems with sexual immorality in the church. Those things often come together. In fact, in, in ancient Corinth, they did because there was a temple with temple prostitutes there. So... Food offered to idols, prostitution, all this stuff going on together. It's like, it's all, wherever there's idolatry, there's sexual immorality. And I might say, wherever there's sexual immorality, ultimately there is idolatry hiding behind there somewhere. Like in our culture today. So free about all of its immorality. What does that mean about what their God is? Lowercase g. Idolatrous is what it is. And then it tells us that the people complained. I've given you cross references in the Old Testament. If we had a, you know, this is like a class, I'd go through a whole lengthy time of going back to each of these passages and looking at them with you. And you could do that later on at home this afternoon or this week to look at these passages. I'm kind of relying on your familiarity with them. You have. Um, Verse number 9, Neither let us tempt Christ as some were tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain as some of them complained and were destroyed by this destroyer. Remember, they complained and God sent snakes among them. And then Moses put up a, a, a snake on a pole. They looked at that snake. It became a, a preview of a coming event in world history with the cross of Christ looking upon the one hanging suspended between heaven and earth. They looked at him and were saved, just as those in the Old Testament looked at the snake and were saved from the bite that they had received. Um, then, actually, there's some some of these you just don't know exactly what Paul's referring to because the people complained so many times. Uh, Numbers 14, they lifted up their voices and cried out because they said, "Look, we can't go into that land. It's, the walls are as high as this." The heavens, and we're like grasshoppers before those people. Uh, we're going to die. Or number 16, the rebellion against Moses and Aaron by Korah. And you remember what happened to Korah and his bunch? Yeah, they were finished off right quick. And then the people, after they saw God judge Korah and swallow them up, the people complain against God. And then God says, look, just get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to go consume these people in a moment. I'm done with them. Uh, Stiff-necked complainers all the time. I've given them all these provisions and all they can do is complain. And it's not just because God was upset. It was that they were re rebellious against God. They were unbelieving against God. And so, a uh, plague starts to go out among the people and Moses takes a censer, runs in the midst of the people, tries to, to stop the 
progress of the plague. And so they were able to do that, but not before many people were killed. Now, God is exactly the same today as He was then. You believe that, right? The God of the New Testament is no different than the God of the Old Testament. They're both the same. So, He's gracious today. He gives gracious gifts today. But not only is God the same as He was then, people are basically the same as they were then. Right? Their nature, our nature is the same. We, we complain at what God has provided. You know, we want... Remember the people of Israel? They, what is this manna? And they got tired of this manna. Give us meat. We want onions and leeks and garlic like we had in Egypt. Give it to us. So... We're like them. We always want food that's not on the menu. We want a partner who's not our spouse. We want God who's not the true God. We want conditions easier than they are. Paul is saying, don't do that. Stop doing that. Don't follow their example. So, biblical history tells us without self-discipline, disqualification is next. But then the Bible says in this lesson from history, do not follow their example. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 and 11 basically say the same thing. The saying goes, as you know, that those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Actually, Turtle said it was a little different. Those who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it. It's a sad thing today, my friends. You can see it if you've had any time behind you or any experience or any reading. People are trying to rush headlong after systems of government that have proven themselves to be utter and abject failures throughout history. Even before our very eyes in our own world because they have failed to learn the lesson of Churchill, to learn the lessons of history. Now, those who do know history aren't guaranteed to avoid its mistakes obviously. But those who don't know it are much more prone to repeat its errors and disasters. I give some commentary in my notes about the failed efforts at historiography which try to use history to teach present concerns and don't reflect history as history. There's some legitimate concerns there. I give a hat tip to that later in the notes. But History has long ago become what much of modern media is today, not reporting the news, but participating in it and shaping it to shape your opinion. Among all of their listeners, they want to change the views of them. But coming back to our our Scripture, that's why I say that to say illustrate why we can't have fanciful interpretations of our Bible. We can't say all this typology and this allegory and all that cool stuff that we can kind of rediscover in the text of Scripture with Paul's help. And it wasn't literally there in the, in the text. And it's a legend and it's a myth and all of those things. No, we, we cannot do that because we cannot miss the true lessons of biblical history. For Israel, the lessons are repeated and clear. Do not do what they did lest you suffer the consequences that they suffered. Look at verse 6. These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. This is kind of like a parent telling his or her teenager, don't do that because it will have a bad outcome. Don't hang out with those friends because that will be a bad outcome for you. Well, how do you know, Mom and Dad? Well, in too many cases, we know because we went around that block a time or two ourselves. Don't repeat those mistakes that we made or that we learned from history or that you know by reading your Bible. Like, don't get mixed up with an unbeliever or in a, like our brother Jack Mitchell, an unbelieving business partner. Don't do that because it's going to be a problem down the line. Um... So at that point, you have a choice. Am I going to follow the advice or am I not? Am I going to follow the the teaching? Am I going to see that they're a bad example and not go that way? I'm not going to lust after evil things as they also lusted? 
We went through already verses 7 through 10. Drop down to verse 11 as we look at the lessons from history. All this is recorded so that we don't do the bad things that they did. By the way, the Bible type of history is a very unvarnished kind of history, isn't it? There's no hiding the faults and flaws of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the patriarchs and King David and Solomon and all the kings after them. I mean, this is not a rosy picture of history. This is real history. Verse 11 says, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Two things about that phrase or phrases. It's always better to learn from the bad examples of others than to make the bad example yourself. Okay? Learn from experience. The experience of others is the best kind to learn from. Secondly, notice this upon whom the ends of the ages have come. If this was true for the Corinthians in 50 A.D., 55, how much more true do you think it is today? If the ends of the ages were falling upon their heads, 2,000 years later, almost, 1,900 and some, what do you think this means? Paul is using this to add urgency to the matter of obedience to Christ and not be disqualified. Look, the Lord can return at any moment. We must be ready by being holy and busy serving how the Lord has directed us. We can't sit there like the, the servants in the parables of Jesus and say, look, my Master is going to long delay His coming. I'm just going to sit here and be lazy. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to be drunk. I'm going to beat the servants. I'm going to not treat my, my Lord's vineyard the way that it should. And I'll get things straightened out later on. Yeah, well, the Lord says, guess what, buster? He's going to come back in an hour which you do not expect. And you're going to be cut up into pieces because of your wickedness. So, there's urgency here. How much closer are we to the return of Christ than even the Corinthians upon whom this should have weighed heavily? I mean, you're looking at the return of Christ and your church is full of strife, divisions, immorality, no church discipline, lawsuits, marriage problems, idolatry, not caring about your brothers, not doing the Lord's table properly, and the Lord is coming? We better hurry up and get the house clean before the guests arrive. We've got problems here in our lives. So Paul says to them, Humble yourself and flee from temptation. And this we'll just have to sketch for lack of time this morning. Humble yourself and flee temptation. Verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now don't read that verse like, um, like the word fall is a minor fall. You know, fell and scraped your knee. The kind of fall that Paul is talking about here is the kind of fall that he just illustrated with their deaths, with their judgment. Take heed lest you fall into judgment, into divine judgment. Some of the Corinthians were making a case that they could continue to eat idle meat, no problem, they could even do so in the temple of the idol. But Paul is warning them in light of biblical history, don't think like that. You get yourself in a very dangerous territory very quickly. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will help you and protect you. And then finally, this morning, I think I would like to ask you, if you haven't already, to take verse 13 and memorize it. Flat out memorize it. Just know it. Very important. It gives us two facts and two promises. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Your temptations are not unique. That's a fact. 
They are human. Right now, right this instant, at 12.09 on Sunday afternoon, think of the things that often tempt you. Right in your mind. Just have that processing. Then remind yourself that those are human things that you face. The trials of sin are because of our broken nature. And that is everywhere evident. But as you think about those temptations that come your way, even severe temptations that would say to your mind, I'm just going to leave the Christian life behind. I'm going to leave all the things that I know presently behind and go you know, do the prodigal son thing. Remember fact number two that God is faithful. When we are tempted to be unfaithful, God is always faithful. Always available to seek for help. Always there. Never changed. Never asleep. Never gone. Never uncaring about the plight of His own people. So you have fact number one, your temptations are human. They're not unique to you. Fact two, God is faithful. Promise number one, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. I trust you believe that. And you don't just say, well, in my case, actually, that's not true. No, it is true. It is true. His faithfulness means that God will not permit you to experience too great a temptation. Think of Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples. Who is it that you seek? I am He. Let these others go. He did not let them be tested above what they were able to handle. He didn't even let Peter be tested above what he was able to handle, but Peter fell down on the job, so to speak, and, and fell into that sin of denying the Lord Jesus. Thank Him for His restorative work. Why? Because He's faithful. You see? You keep coming back to that. That pull of your old life, idolatry and immorality in this passage, but your old life may have other sins attached to it, is not so strong that it will inevitably swallow you up. God can and will help to pull you away from that situation. Promise number two, then, is God will help you to escape. He won't allow you to be tempted more than you're able and He will help you to escape the temptation. Look at that at the end of the verse. He will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, sometimes to escape, you have to flee like Joseph in the Old Testament. Sometimes you can't flee from it. It's something like built into your situation or life. You can, you can pray. You can turn away from that. You can seek the help of a brother or sister in Christ. You can change your behavior. You can replace the bad with the good. You can tell your thoughts to stop. Put something else up in there. You can repent of the sinful desires and tendencies that cause that temptation to be tempting to you. But God provides a way of escape. A way to bear up under the, the temptation. Even though it might last a long time, still He does. So Paul writes this and we might look at it and say, oh, it's all Old Testament stuff and it's not really relevant today to the church. But we must stop and notice that this is very serious business. He's talking about disqualification. He's talking about deep moral sin. He's talking about judgment unto death. You know, we continue to stubbornly to, to, to cling to the... Or I'm sorry, we, we can continue to stubbornly cling to the belief that salvation is eternally secure. We do believe that. And we are stubborn about that. But salvation is not secure for false professors. And true believers can lose their lives because of sinful behavior. Did you get that? Disqualification could be loss of rewards and all of that, but it also could include you lose your life because you have gone into sin. 1 Corinthians 11 gives us examples. Some of you people that mistreated the Lord's table are weak and sick and some have even died 
That's disqualification. That's serious. So don't follow the example of Israel. And don't follow the behavior pattern of the Corinthian church either, by the way. But thanks to God for giving us such a clear instructions about history and reminding us. You know, God puts severe sounding warnings in your path as guardrails to keep you on the straight and narrow. Don't go off of there because that's a very deep ditch down there. You know, the broad way leads to not to life. So follow those warnings that God gives, like this passage, and by and by, you'll come all the way to glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you will watch over us and help us to take seriously what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.